I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mujola Malay. This is the CMHA podcast. This episode, we're going to look at the increasing role of AI in healthcare delivery. We're going to start our discussion with a practice paper that was published in the CMAJ. It looked at the use of AI in the detection and diagnosis of colorectal uh, cancers by the detection of polyps. So, Jola, you're a colorectal endoscopist. You put cameras yes. into colons. <laughs> I don't even I think do. a colorectal endoscopist is the right term for that, but you're a general surgeon who either. does colonoscopies. Yes, um, I do. <laughs> Do you want to give us a summary of this paper? Yeah, for sure. Um, it was a really, it was a really interesting paper uh, because they were looking at polyp detection, and basically their goal was that can we get to the point where we can look at the polyp using this AI and say, you know what, it's less than five millimeters, it's most likely going to be not significant, and then we can just throw it into the trash instead of setting it to pathology. So for listeners like me who don't put cameras into people's colons. Like, what's the process like? Like, what do you do? You have a camera up there, you're looking at your screen. Like, what goes through your mind? Like, when I'm looking at a polyp? Yeah. Oh, this looks like a polyp. And then you tilt, <laughs> everyone tilts their head sideways in the room like, mm, is it a polyp? Mm, is it big enough? Let's just take it anyways. Um, so those are for the small ones. And then they're the obvious ones are really, like, oh, okay, there's a polyp and you take you remove it. So this is really talking about those very small polyps that the human eye misses. And we know that every 1% increase in adenoma detection rate is also associated with a 3% decrease in colon cancer mortality. So hmm. having this technology perfected is going to be really a game changer in terms of uh colorectal cancer detection and prevention. And we're using the colorectal cancer detection paper here as sort of an anecdote for the broader question of how artificial intelligence can augment human performance and perhaps help our struggling healthcare system. So after we speak to the author of this paper, we're going to get into a really interesting conversation, I suspect, with a futurist. I've never spoken to a futurist before. Uh, so we're going to be speaking to uh, Zena Kayat about where AI is going to have the biggest impact on medicine. So that's coming up. Dr. Michael Byrne is the co-author of a practice paper in CMAJ entitled Artificial Intelligence and Colorectal Cancer Screening. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Blair. Jola. Let's jump right into things. Your paper examines two uses of artificial intelligence in colorectal screening, detection and diagnosis. So let's start with detection. Tell me, how good is AI at detecting polyps that are worrisome? I think a fairly obvious opening statement is already studies showing that it's a lot better than many physicians, which should be hopefully an alarm ringing in our heads to, to tell us that. For years, we're a bit complacent and think we're doing pretty well, but actually we're not doing that well. So I think if you look at most of the studies, Blair, in the last two or three years, they're suggesting that AI can increase the polyp pickup rate for most doctors by at least 10 to 15%, and that's a big gain. You said the word most twice, and yeah. curious. Are some physicians able to beat the computer? Are there sort of superstars out there, or is the computer sort of better than everyone? Hopefully, ultimately, the computer will be better than everybody. And that's, you know, dealing with the inaccuracies of the human eye and brain and the distraction and the fatigue and the limitations of the human eye. But for now, there are definitely, what we want machines to do is put an expert on your shoulder. So the people out there who are 
diagnosing lots and lots of polyps and finding them rather, have that performance replicated in more, you know, regular settings, right? So I think for now, the machine is getting to the point of what the true global expert is doing. So give us a view of sort of what this looks like with that sort of guide on your shoulder. Like when you're looking at your endoscopy screen, are you seeing like, like does a little red dot show up? It depends on the, so there's no one user interface that is the norm right now. It's still being ironed out by the different manufacturers and people who make these solutions. But essentially what it does is it puts a little bounding box around the polyp. And it may or may not give an audible alert. So I'm doing my procedure and on the same screen, if a polyp shows up, I may or may not have seen it, but the machine puts a little green or yellow box around the polyp and it draws my attention on the screen. All of this in real time. All of this in real time, yeah. I'm a general surgeon and I also scope. So I just like how much faster or slower does it change your, like your scoping? Yeah, that's a very good point you made, Joella, because... One of the barriers that we're having with AI is implementation and user acceptance, right? So it's confidence in the accuracy of tools, but it's also, is that a nuisance factor? Is it going to make me better, but is it also going to improve efficiency? And if, as you and I both know as endoscopists, if it's slowing us down, a lot of people are going to go, I don't want to be slowed down. I want to be at the same pace or actually made more efficient and quicker so I can do more procedures, hopefully to serve my patients and also for the selfish practice things that we, you and I know about in the real world. So for now, hopefully it doesn't really slow things down. I think there will be a little bit of time for physicians to get used to the new distraction on the screen, in quotes, of a new tool telling you to have a look over there. But I think most studies suggest that it has little impact on overall timing of the procedure. And what's the false positive rate for it? So original models were pretty high. It would beep on everything if it saw a little Mm -hmm. bubble or if it saw a different fold on the bowel wall or a piece of stool or an air bubble, it it would put a box around it, which is very frustrating. Most tools now are getting a false positive in the range of maybe three to five percent. And if you and I as endoscopists know this, when we look at the screen, we question ourselves all the time with our nurse saying, is that a polyp? I'm not sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, we have to remember the inefficiencies of what we human physicians have every day and not expect machines to be perfect. So that's the detection side of things. Tell us about the diagnostic side of things. So either a machine or a human eye detects something that looks worrisome and then you take a biopsy. And how does AI play into the diagnosis of that biopsy? So I'm particularly excited about this aspect of AI. It's a field in which I've been involved with for several years. Doing a so-called optical biopsy means that the human eye looks at something and without doing a physical biopsy, you make a determination as to what kind of tissue that is. So in the colon, it's is it a precancerous polyp or not? And the accuracy of the human eye for most people, and I'm sure Jolo will agree with this, is not that great. Whereas the machine, studies are suggesting, is very accurate for telling you in real time, less than a second, what that polyp is. And that's going to change practice because right now what happens is every single polyp that we see, we take it off and we send it to the pathology lab. What AI tools should allow is what's called resect and discard. So you use the machine, tells you what it is, and then you take it off and you throw it in the garbage because you've already done your virtual pathology. 
hugely cost saving and efficiency gaining. And why is that important? Lots of reasons. You know, we all should be custodians of appropriate use of, you know, healthcare dollars in the current day, very expensive healthcare overall. And if, for example, you can obviate the need for pathology to be involved with these very small and common lesions, you might save the US system, for example, a billion dollars a year. That's one metric that's kind of out there. When you're looking for the polyp, it's not just how it looks that you're assessing what this, mm-hmm. you know, if this is adenoma versus hyperplastic. Does the AI also have part of the algorithm? What does it look like when you're near with the bi- biopsy forcep? Or is it basically strictly looking at it from its visual characteristic? It's generally looking at the visual characteristics for now. And I'll again, I'm sure you know this, the human physician if we are trying to do our own optical biopsy, in other words, a virtual pathology, which is possible, we're asked to look for three things, color, shape of the pits, the little round structures on the polyp surface, and the vascular or the blood vessel pattern. It's called the, One is called the NICE classification. Most physicians are not that accurate to that. If you look at what an AI algorithm doing an optical biopsy sees, it's looking at least a thousand features per polyp, things that we can't even conceptualize as humans. So... It's looking at many things on the surface, uh, below the surface, that the human eye often just can't even appreciate. Mm. And we're talking about smaller polyps, right? Because I guess my worry is like, what is the chances of it missing like a malignant polyp? Yeah, for now, we're definitely in this space talking about smaller polyps to bring into practice this resect and discard. In other words, Mm -hmm. make a diagnosis, take it off and throw it in the garbage. You're absolutely right. And an important point is for larger polyps, so let's say five or 10 millimeters and bigger, the chance of a cancerous involvement of those polyps is bigger, as you know. That doesn't mean that AI doesn't have a role there. That just means that's a different kind of tool. And lots of groups, including mine and others, are looking at that as well. Not only how can we improve how we manage polyps overall, detect more and do an optical biopsy on them? How can we deal with the larger more obviously precancerous lesions. How do we take them off? Do we send them to people like you as a surgeon to cut them out surgically? Or can we remove them with endoscopic surgery? And AI will be able to tell us depth of invasion, chance of lymph node involvement, etc. So risk stratify the patient in real time as well. But we're not quite there yet. That would be one that would be great. Michael, you run a business developing this type of AI. When you talk about it to your colleagues, how receptive are they? Are they excited? Are they nervous? Are they skeptical? I think a few years ago, there was a huge amount of skepticism, with, as with any technology. And I, I hope and I believe a lot of that has gone away. I think the concern about performance has mostly gone away, although you know we've still got a ways to go to get user confidence. So we need physician confidence to get patient confidence. But I think many of the studies are so promising that the physician confidence, even those who know little or nothing about AI and see this black box, are accepting that machines and technology can and should and will help our performance. I think the ongoing skepticism is also about concern about turf battles. So, for example, Mm. in the space we've just been speaking about for the last five, ten minutes, the practice of optically biopsying a polyp and sending it, putting it in the garbage takes away the need for a pathologist to look at those small polyps. That is a right. a territory infringement. And in this space, in radiology, where a lot of diagnostic radiology may 
go down the path of being read by a machine. That definitely frightens people. It shouldn't because I think there's a lot of things that we can have. It's basically hybrid intelligence where it's the human, physician, and the machine working in perfect harmony. And we take away all of the things that we don't like doing, the things that we're inefficient at, the fatiguing things, the administrative work, the scheduling, the billing, the, the reporting, and focus much more on the patient. So it shouldn't be seen, I think, as a threat. Um, there's a slide I use in some of my talks, which finishes by saying AI won't replace physicians, but physicians who use AI will replace those who do not use AI. And mm. I think that's probably the answer for now, that we're getting to the point where people will embrace it, but we need to help them overcome their concerns about a territory or a turf or a practice. Aside from sort of those cultural, deeply ingrained things in medicine, are there any other obstacles that are pressing right now that are preventing the acceleration of this particular technology? Yes, many. I mean, we really are, I wouldn't say at the beginning, I think we're at a very exciting space in time in medicine where machine performance is starting to outperform humans in, in, in many aspects, but we're just crossing that intersection. We've got concerns around introducing bias, ethical use of data, regulatory barriers, who's responsible if the machines make a mistake, um, robust models, because right now most AI models are trained on somewhat limited variability in the data sets. Often Tell me teaching. more about that, Michael, because we've been talking a lot in the last couple of months about how guidelines and data sets are sometimes not inclusive of the general population, yeah. particularly when guidelines from elsewhere might be used. How representative is the general population in the group used to generate this machine learning algorithm? So in the work we're talking about in terms of the paper in the journal on polyps, it's good but it's absolutely not perfect. And I think it's very clear to most people in this space that we really need to now have much more generalizable tools that are developed from having data, not just from teaching hospitals, but from community settings, from rural hospitals, and from all sorts of jurisdictions, ethnicities, ages, you know, whatever. We need that entire mix to make these models robust. Is there a role, because I mean, I think ultimately what we'd love to get to is where patients don't have to go undergo an invasive procedure. Is there a role for AI in like virtual colonoscopies? Absolutely. There's a role for AI in, in all of these things. There's a role for AI in anal analyzing all the data that come out of the liquid and stool assays, like the fit testing. There's a role mm -hmm. for AI in radiology, as mm -hmm. you say, a CT or a virtual colonoscopy, picking up those polyps. Maybe the AI can also tell from the x-ray image what kind of polyp it is. There's a whole field of radiomics or deep radiomics where you can not just see a lesion. Hopefully, you can also characterize it. So, yeah, I strongly believe that AI will help in all aspects of, mo of imaging, whether they're visible or invisible to the human eye. This is totally fascinating. We have a very bright future. Thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Dr. Michael Bearden is gastroenterologist in Vancouver and the chairman and CEO of Satisfy Health Inc. As exciting as it is to hear about the use of AI to support diagnostics and detection, our next guest does not think this is where AI is going to have its greatest impact on medicine. 
Zainia Kayat is a future strategist and vice president of growth and client success at digital health solutions firm, Teladoc Health. She's also adjunct faculty at the Rotman School of Business. Zaina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Zaina, where do you think AI will actually have the greatest impact in healthcare? Yeah, I mean, everybody wants to right away go to what we want to imagine in our head that a machine will replace these highly trained diagnosticians called physicians. But the reality is that's, you know, going to be an impact. I don't know how quick, but the majority of the impact of AI, like right now, is just doing what we do with reams of data very poorly as humans, either because we don't have capacity, we don't have computing power, and we just don't have the speed. So doing what we do smarter, faster, better, and cheaper. So I would suggest that the two biggest areas will be one, just reducing total costs. Healthcare is about 30% inefficient. That's it? 30%. Right. So there's 30 cents on every dollar. It feels like more. (laughs) Yeah. But that's huge. No business can operate at a 30 to 40 percent inefficiency, yet we tolerate it in healthcare. And a big driver is we really use a very analog way of managing information and making decisions. And that's without ever touching patient care that I think AI can help us reduce inefficiency and therefore liberate capital. And the second is increasing throughput, which is a different way of using your resources smarter because you can move people through a clinic faster or you can triage a lot better. Therefore, you get the right people to the right place. So none of that Mm -hmm. affects how a decision is made about a diagnosis that impacts care. It's just the organization of the care. I think that's going to be where 99% of the value will come for at least the next decade. Zaina, give me a few other examples of how AI can get us out of the analog Just basic things like I was telling this story the other day. I finally signed up for my bivalent fourth dose for my vaccine. And so in theory, I should have, my primary care should have let me know, hey, you're due. Have you done it? Of course, I hear nothing from my primary care because all they do is reactive care. But the local pharmacy, you know, knew that I was due because I did my third dose sent me a text and an email, gave me a way to self-schedule my dose, gave me all my reminders before, all my prep work. I showed up and then they gave me a clipboard to fill out three pages of forms. And I was like, what? You know, so that would be just such a simple example where imagine if all those clipboards were with those forms were eliminated from healthcare and we really don't need them. And so now you've got two ways value gets created there. One is without any AI, you've now digitized this analog thing. So you could take all the human steps of touching that form out of the equation. My human steps of filling the stupid thing out (laughs) and the clinician's human steps of making it, printing it, putting on the clipboard, giving it to me, and then manually typing in the information afterwards. Bizarre. But then now the utility of that information is now in a data set where maybe Zaina is pair matched to the 80,000 others like me in Canada who also were about to get their fourth dose. And maybe there'll be some patterns they can see or they can predict to make that whole process faster, smarter, better, cheaper. That's the power of all these exchanges in healthcare. Once they become digital and data-based, you can just be so much smarter about all of it at every step. And we are missing that entire black box with our analog approach to care organization. There's a lot of obstacles, obviously, to digitizing, but one concern that comes up often for Canadians is data privacy. How concerned should people be about this idea of their health information being digitized and available on a cloud? 
I don't think there should be concern because if people knew how their health information right now is available, not on the cloud, <laughs> they would be rioting in the streets. Like just the actually the other day when I was doing my bivalent vaccine, the pharmacist is asking the patient questions and we all heard all of it. Their address, their phone number, why they're here today. That's pretty private information that we all got privy into. Or the fact that I think 15% of faxes go to the wrong fax. So CIBC for a while was getting hundreds of thousands of referral requests because one number was wrong and propagated over and over on a fax. So I just think, what are we talking about? I think we often hold the next way to do things up to a very higher standard and don't compare it to the absolutely terrible way we do things in the current analog way. And then somehow we think that's the gold standard. A lot of physicians complain about the workload that is added when they go and digitize. And I certainly experienced this in the United States where the digital record was far more comprehensive in a bad way, like it was annoying and a waste of time often. And it changed medical education, certainly in the States. You know, I hear that over and over again. So I think we have to really think about segmentation, right? So the place where your epics of the world have embedded is pretty much hospital-based care, right? So that is a part of healthcare, but that is not the entire system. It's just what we obsess about, particularly in Canada. So that's what we count as the thing that everyone does, but it's not the thing that everyone does. It's hospital-based documentation, and it's just very bad designs. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't have documentation that's digital. Okay. So to me, like to say that because we've added burden because of t terrible design and implementation, that means tech is bad, I think is a wrong framing. So let's just say that we took a quantum leap and we were digitized, we were computerized, we got rid of all this paper redundancy, and we had this nice streamlined electronic medical record with all of our data in it. And it didn't take Jola and I forever to input it all. Maybe it just automatically populated somehow. There's a box in the room listening to my conversations and it just knows what to put where. What then is the future of AI in healthcare when it comes to diagnosis or really saving lives outside of system efficiency? Yeah. So And so that future is already here in other jurisdictions that have already waded through our mucky stage in Canada of just digitizing all our analog stuff. So, you know, my framework is in the next five years, generally, most agree that the order of operations of where AI will un help unlock new value that literally humans cannot do with the current capacity we have is for sure, like I said, operations and logistics, first and foremost, that none of that affects direct patient care or decisions about care. The second is around prediction and triage. So a little bit of what you've been talking about with your colonoscopy diagnostic. So that step of a doctor's process of predicting based on evidence what might be going on, AI, that's what AI does really well. It replaces that and does it better, smarter, faster, cheaper. And that I think will apply to a couple areas. I think dermatology for sure. That's the easy one. Very easy to train the AI, that's in practice. Radiology, as we've been discussing, all types of imaging. And then the other two clinical areas is psychiatry, and that's different. It's not images, oh. but it's more around there's so much data. Like we have, we're working with some partners where, you know, in a interview, let's say to predict autism or dementia, having a camera this way and a camera from the side, there's so much data in intonation, face and voice and tone and that can predict things that no human will ever catch, 
with accuracy. Mm. Cardiology is another big area. And then, of course, drug discovery, that's more to statistical odds of finding the right match of the molecule for the oh. target agent instead of what pharma has been for the last hundred years, which is throw a bunch of spaghetti strands against the wall and one might stick. <laughs> and then it costs a billion dollars to develop it. Just how far behind the eight ball is Canada and how many years will it take before you think we've achieved a catch up where we've digitized and we're now we're really focused on using AI to supplement or enhance a physician's day to day work? Yeah. So first thing is, there's a great quote, Anthony Chang, one of the clinical experts in this area, I think with an academic medical center in Boston. You know, I love his quote. He said, AI is what electricity did to humanity. Okay. And some think AI is the last human invention because every invention from now on will only happen because of AI. So it's really interesting framing. But he said, if AI is electricity for humanity, healthcare is like a little light bulb in a hut right now, okay? So even other places that are already building these tools into pretty low-hanging fruit, including in diagnostics and predicting risk of disease or what have you, which affects then obviously medical care, we're just infants. Like it's, we're just so scratching the surface. So for Canada to be very behind, okay, I think the catch-up will be fast. I often say digital came to healthcare around 2008. And if you think about that, that's already 10 years later than the rest of the world got transformed by digital, right? The e-commerce revolution, you know, 1999, 2000. So we are already 10 years behind. And then I generally add a 15-year tax for Canada. So we just are getting started on realizing that we cannot keep delivering care using labor, it's impossible. You will never have enough hands on the patient, no matter what you try to do, <laughs> no matter how much time you try to poach them from other countries, we're just not going to do it, no matter how many medical schools you build. So technology replaces labor. That's what it does, right? That's the, either labor's physical stuff or labor's cognitive actions. And AI will help with both. So I don't think it's bad that we're behind. I just think we need to place our focus where the most value can be and walk before we run. And and. I find AI and all the big fancy tech captures so much imagination that big funding gets done for big centers. And I'd rather we fund maybe housing and food security with those money first. <laughs> so we don't have such a demand on healthcare that we ask, you know, formal medical care to mop up. Sana, thank you so much for joining us. We could go on right into the next century talking about this type of stuff. Hopefully Canada is able to catch up and digitize without crushing physicians with keystrokes. Thanks so much for joining us. Sina Kayat is the future strategist and vice president of growth and client success at digital healthcare solutions firm, Teladoc Health. She's also adjunct faculty at the Rotman School of Business. So Jola, let's start with the anecdote. Do you think AI would make you a better endoscopist? Well, my pride tells me that I'm as perfect as possible. Uh, but reality <laughs> will say that, yes, of course, I do think that this has the ability to really increase the adenoma detection rate. The one part about it that made me realize that I was kind of like, huh, is that at the end of the day, it's whatever you show it. So if you're not taking the time to finish, to go slowly at, on your withdrawal, hmm. it won't see it anyways, right? So I think right. this is just, it's as good as 
the endoscopists themselves in terms of having patients and doing the 10 greater than 10 minutes um, withdrawal time. So that was the one thing that really stuck out to me that this is, I think it would be really phenomenal, especially like, you know, when we talk about um, fatigue in like when we're doing a procedure, but at the end of the day, we give it the input. Right. And then widening the lens going up to 30,000 feet. I wasn't overly surprised to hear Zena talk about sort of how computerization and digitization might make us more efficient, but I'm always skeptical that we can do that without throwing some of that administrative burden onto clinicians like nurses and physicians who are trying to spend as much time with patients as they can. I, I think 100% we do. Like even like I love electronic medical records. I find that I think it's ridiculous that we just started doing it. I do Mm -hmm. think it's ridiculous that it's not connected through different healthcare systems. Like, you know, UHN uh, in Toronto uses Epic. Me at Scarborough uses Epic. But if a patient is seen at UHN, I don't automatically see the notes of what happened to them. I have to, like, do a request to actually be able to access those notes. Right. It would be nice if we could leverage more technology to reduce the the human data entry. I know at Stanford, we had all the bells and whistles and like there would be fancy lights and sensors that would detect urine output and chest tube drainage and things like that so that it would just automatically end up in the chart so that nurses had less less cognitive workload, less time in front of the computer and could spend more time doing patient care. That is amazing. You see, that to me is a great technology where it's not, you know, them having to do all these, you know, man, like cause it's at the end of the day, they're still writing in a paper and mm-hmm. then going to the computer yeah. to write it in and going to the computer to check the order and, you know, all of those things. And so that that's great. If video cameras and microphones could like better understand human behavior and human action and just auto document, it would just save all of us a lot of frustrations and allow us to do patient care. But I mean, I don't want AI to get too far ahead of us. Otherwise, you and I might be out of a job podcasting. (laughs) Well, yeah, they definitely can take our podcasting jobs soon. (laughs) But they'll always need us as physicians. I hope so. This is a great episode and really a lot to think about. That's it for our episode this week on the CMAJ podcast. Please remember to share our podcast wherever you download your audio from. (laughs) I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Majola Mali. Until next time, be well. Signing off. (laughs) 